0: And welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode we'll be covering the story of the crash of the Challenger. The Challenger was a space shuttle which launched in 1986, which sadly exploded 76 seconds into flight in front of millions of people, killing all members of crew on board. Back to space. It's been a long time. Long time coming. But before we jump in, just a reminder as always. Um, first of all, to follow me on Instagram, I'm at When It Goes Wrong Pod. Uh, love chatting with you over there, uh, and do give me a rating or a review or whatever you fancy in terms of the the amp you're currently listening on. Uh, thank you very much. So, yes, we are going deep into space. Well, no, we're not actually going deep into space at all. We're going slightly high into the atmosphere. Uh, but yes, chatting more about the space shuttle program. Uh, and we actually chatted about this in the Columbia episode. So, the Columbia episode was one of the early episodes that I did. I want to say maybe like episode three yes episode three we last chatted about the space shuttle so if you enjoyed this one and then you want to want to do do it all again but uh, much more recent and when the ship is coming back into land then go and head over to the to the Columbia episode but I'm going to recap on what the space shuttle program is uh, if you listen to that one you'll hear about it as well. But basically the US started the space shuttle program in 1972. And I said this in the Columbia episode, and I'll say it again. I didn't really click until I started researching this that it that the whole concept of a space shuttle—it's in the name—is uh, just is to shuttle, <laughs> is to use the same spacecraft, the kind of same core spacecraft to to both take off and land. Uh, so before before and after this, uh, there have been different types of spacecraft, but basically the the idea with those was that you would take off in in some form of uh, rocket, uh, but then when you return back to Earth, you might just return back in, in, in terms of a portion of it or um, the space rocket as a whole might break apart when you re-enter the atmosphere. But the hope with the space shuttles was that they were built you know strong and protected enough that we that the space shuttle can land back and be reused time and time again. And the hope with, with doing these space shuttles was to do quite a lot of different trips into space, to do them really regularly, uh, so that we were, one, learning a lot more about space, but two, we're also kind of making commercial opportunities as well. So we were taking up things like satellites more and, yeah, really kind of advancing our knowledge by doing it so often. And so when it comes to the space shuttle, the space shuttle had, was made up of different things. So we had the main body orbiter, uh, and if you think of what a space rocket looks like uh, then that's then that's this bit that I'm talking about the main body, body orbiter uh, so it looks like kind of like a plane but slightly different shaped with its with its wings uh, and this is where the crew uh, sit and live and and everything like that and it's the bar the part that goes up and then the part that also comes back down and is reused the When the shuttle takes off, it's then connected to two other things. So it's connected to two solid rocket boosters. And those are the boosters that give the shuttle enough thrust in order to make it up and outside of the atmosphere and kind of uh, work against gravity. So those are like two huge, like giant engines just creating thrust um and they are attached to a fuel tank as well because obviously you need more fuel in order to to, to fuel the <laughs> the boosters when the shuttle takes off it needs, like i say it needs a huge amount of energy to beat gravity and so the rocket boosters push the shuttle out of the atmosphere and then basically the orbiter detaches from it the shuttle itself detaches from it Uh, The boosters and the fuel tank uh, fall back behind them. Usually they fall into the ocean uh, and NASA would track these as they fell off and then would go and pick them up uh, and go and find them. Oh, actually, I lie. The fuel tank disintegrates, but the (laughs) the solid rocket boosters, they go and pick them up uh, and reuse bits of it. So yeah, so then the orbiter, the shuttle, goes back uh, to do its mission. So it usually just kind of circles the Earth, uh, orbits the Earth, hence orbiter, uh, and it does whatever missions it was set to do, depending on which which mission it was doing. And so once that happens, uh, the the orbiter glides back uh, and lands back in Earth, back in Earth, back on Earth, usually in it, like in a very big runway type deal overall the space program was really successful so they did 135 missions uh, which were were conducted as a whole uh, and only two accidents so we've talked about one we're going to talk about the other so yeah in general it was very successful but clearly there were a few mishaps as well so yeah, there were d- there were different shuttles built throughout the program. One of them was the was the Challenger, um, and there were some others as well. They did build one called Enterprise, but it never flew. Um and so, yeah, the first ship that they built was Columbia, and that was built in California and delivered in 1979. But that tragically, like I said in episode three, broke up on re-entry when landing back to Earth. And Challenger was the second space shuttle to be created. Uh, And when Challenger was built, it actually was a lot lighter than Columbia. So they had learned quite a lot about how to build these ships by the time they built this second one. Uh, And Challenger in general was seen to be very successful because it was, yeah, kind of a bit better redesigned when it came along. So in its three years up until this point, the Challenger had done nine successful missions. And completed almost 1,000 orbits of the Earth. So it was a pretty well-established uh, well uh, shuttle and had been doing a very good job. the The incident that we're going to talk about now would have been the 10th flight for the Challenger. Um, and it would have been the 25th flight for the kind of space shuttle program as a whole. So you can tell by those numbers that uh, it was, they were quite well experienced by this point in terms of they'd done it 25 times. They were quite well practiced in terms of how all the processes should go. Uh, and they were, you know, they'd been successful 25 times, right? So I think they were, were pretty confident that things would would continue along that way. So yeah, so as the shuttle started, like I say, becoming quite a frequent occurrence... It was kind of a tricky point for NASA because they wanted, uh, you know, they still wanted public interest. They were a public body, uh, and so that, though, because they did more and more, it then kind of became harder for them to constantly get like buy-in and interest from the public in terms of what was going on in the shuttle. Now, it's really important for them to do. Uh, So, for this flight, for the Challenger flight, uh, NASA kind of did two things. Uh, One of them was not just for Challenger, but was uh, in general. Ignore the uh, crazy cat that you may hear running around in the background. So yeah, the first of all, first of all, that they did around this time was they really diversified their intake. So uh, they started getting involved a lot of women, which was great. A lot of diversity in ethnicity, which was excellent. Uh, and this was really high on their agenda, uh, which was quite unusual for the time, uh, and obviously really great to see. Uh, and that really helped get the buy in of of people from from across across the states. And so alongside that, they decided to do something different for this this specific shuttle launch. Uh, they decided that they would take up someone from the public who was not a full astronaut. Uh, and what they decided around this was that they would create a program called the Teacher in Space Programme and the idea with that is exactly how it sounds like uh, they would take up uh, a normal teacher uh, around on the mission with them who would go up and and do teaching stuff uh, and then once they came back they would then return back to their teaching job and so in order to do this program it was it got a lot of buy in from the public it got a lot of buy in from from teachers everyone was quite excited about it uh, you know it, it meant that a lot of a lot more kids were getting involved in terms of the shuttles And they did this huge search uh, and they wanted people from all over the US to apply uh, and eventually 11,000 people applied, uh, but a woman called Krista McAuliffe was chosen. And Krista was, she was a high school teacher from New Hampshire and she really, you know, she really got the buy-in from the public. She was very likable uh, and very, yeah, really engaged the public uh, as she went through this journey. So people were really bought in into her journey and what was going on. Uh, And the idea was, yeah, when she was in space, she would be a payload specialist and she would conduct experiments. She'd she'd then teach science, uh, everything like that uh, in order to once she got up in space. And in order to do all of this, she did a year of training with NASA uh, prior to the launch so that she was ready to go. But yes, it obviously wasn't just Krista going up. So alongside Krista, the crew that made up the Challenger were... It was made up of Commander Dick Scobie, and this was his second mission. There was Pilot Michael Smith. And then the other four alongside, who were either kind of mission specialists or payload specialists, were um, Ellison Enizuka. And Ellison would have been the first Asian-American slash Japanese man to go into space. Uh, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair and Greg Jarvis. So alongside uh, the the Teacher in Space Initiative, they were also going to deploy a satellite uh, and they were also uh, up there to do quite a lot of comet observations. So that's all about the challenger itself and who was on it and ready to go but if we kind of rewind a little bit to give a get a bit more context on some other things going on uh we'd know that there had been some previous concerns with one specific area of the shuttle itself and this was with the applic- the applicant the area called the o-rings and so the O-rings are basically seals within the solid rocket boosters. So uh, the, the huge rocket launchers, the solid rocket boosters, which attach to the shuttle, And the O-rings basically make up some of the joints within that. So they basically seal shut in order to keep the, the solid rocket booster together uh, and make sure that it, it runs in, in the same way and, and, and uh, the joint is successful. And so they're really important because obviously if your seals between your different areas aren't strong and tight, then uh, the thing that they're on will fall apart and and break. So they were clearly very important. Uh, They were done in duplicate because of this. So there wasn't just one seal, there was two seals at each area. Um, And this, yeah, like I say, was was one small part of the whole shuttle, uh, but was clearly an important one. And when we talk about how the shuttle was made, it's similar to today in terms of uh, there was a lot of different companies involved in terms of making the shuttle. So you might have specialist companies that make specialist parts, uh, and then some companies which put all of those back together in order to make the finished object. And in the case of the O-rings, they were done by a separate company, a company called Morton Thiokol, and Thiokol were the people who were responsible and made the O-rings. And so when the O-rings started being made, they they always had a little bit of concern around them. Uh, and that's because there's huge amounts of energy and pressure in those solid rocket boosters. And so if, you know, the seals were actually very hard to make and hard to ensure that they did what they needed to do. And what had happened in some of early testing and what they'd seen was that due to all of that energy and pressure, some of the O-rings were extruding Um, Which basically was what they weren't meant to do. So they were kind of pushing out instead of pulling in and sealing. And also because they were then extruding, but also with all the pressures, it meant that the O-rings were actually starting to erode and degrade because of this, because it was exposed to the gases. Uh, And yeah, like I said, they were eroding uh, away over time. And so they started kind of testing the O-rings and they mainly tested them at standard kind of warm temperatures. So anywhere from like 12 degrees up until kind of 30 degrees in terms of the, the temperatures they wanted to test in when they were taking off. And as part of this testing, they previously said, look, we probably should test these at a lower temperature, a lower outside temperature, uh, in order to see what happens. But for some reason or another, that was not decided to be uh, needed. uh, And so they didn't do that type of testing. And so yeah, so they were a bit worried about this. And in some of the previous 25 shuttle launches they had done a bit of analysis on the o-rings um and they had found that in one of them they found debris in between the two o-rings so that basically means that the first o-ring had partially failed but then it had been caught by the second o-ring so this is the kind of thing it's like they kind of knew something was up and something might might have been going wrong but they didn't It wasn't kind of like high enough in terms of flagging risk in order for them to actually do anything about it. They just kind of knew like, oh, you know, it isn't perfect, but it's doing the job. uh, So we'll continue on. So, yeah, NASA was still happy happy with those risk levels and continued to proceed. So if we fast forward now back to the Challenger itself, the actual launch of the Challenger was very delayed. (laughs) So it was originally set to launch on the 22nd of January. In 1986 um, and then the 23rd of January 1986 but for both of those it was pushed pushback because the flight before it uh, the STS-61C uh, had been delayed so they were waiting for one of the shuttles to, to come back and so because of that uh, the the launch of the Challenger was delayed um, and basically the previous flight, which was the Columbia, uh, which had been up up there, uh, but that one had been delayed in terms of its takeoff because they had had several uh, kind of technical alerts and reading delays that delayed the one before it. Uh, and then it also had bad weather when that one tried to land. So <laughs> basically it was, like, it was like a knock-on effect. Same with like today when, you know, if one plane doesn't come in on time, the rest can't go off. Same concept. So it was delayed for two days because of that. It then was delayed again on the 24th because of weather at one of the sites. On the 25th, it was also delayed uh, because of, there was just delays, like they just weren't ready. So there were launch preparation delays. Then on the 27th, again, it was uh, scheduled to go, uh, but delayed because of equipment failures in one bit of the orbiter. I think... um, maybe like some of the doors were having some issues i can't remember exactly but yeah so that was having issues and then there was also a load of winds that weren't right uh so yeah so on the 27th it was delayed because of equipment and they decided to delay it until the following day uh, on the 28th which is when they would try and take off so you can understand because of this like everyone it's been delayed however many days so far Everyone's really keen for it to take off, not not least the crew, who are obviously like prepping every single day ready to go. Um, but everyone around it is really bought into trying to get the shuttle off on time because every day it's delayed, costs, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars um, in terms of in terms of waiting and also in terms of like like I said engagement from the public like they really wanted people to be engaged and every day they had to say yeah come and watch this and then it didn't go Uh, obviously wasn't great PR for them and this was definitely the case around the 27th because uh, lots of people came to the 27th to 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 watch it take off uh, and then obviously it was it was then delayed so yeah, that was that was a pain. That was putting pressure on them. But yeah, there were lots of people at the site ready to watch it take off. But also, uh, because of the Teacher in Space uh, initiative, there was also it, it was also arranged for like lots of schools to watch the takeoff uh, across the country to kind of get the kids engaged in it. And I think that's one of the, such of the tragic things as of of this is that probably if you were you were at school in 1986, I bet you did sit and watch this and then. Uh, Watch it all go horribly wrong. So yeah, so on the 28th of January then, uh, unfortunately the weather had gotten a lot colder. So it was much colder than they expected and much colder than any other time they had taken off. So it was looking kind of between minus eight and minus three degrees Celsius. And that, like I say, was the coldest temperature it had been. The last, the coldest temperature previously had always been around 12 degrees. Um, Because keep in mind, they are taking off from Florida. You know, it is a nice warm state. Uh, And so, yeah, they weren't, weren't, hadn't done these temperatures before. And basically because of this this really cold temperature, NASA asked all the teams involved in the launch to assess what the impact of the cold weather would be. So would, would the fact that it was cold actually change anything um, or was everyone good to go and proceed as planned? Uh, but like I say, again, there was just huge pressure for everyone to assent to taking off. There was pressure from uh, from the public, from NASA, from the president. Everyone wanted the launch to go ahead uh, and they wanted to continue uh, with, with the shuttle. And so they had a teleconference and Thiokol actually originally said that they thought the launch should be delayed. So the O-rings hadn't been tested in the cold temperatures um, and because of, of how the cold impacts with the material in the in the O-ring, it meant that the material w- would get quite brittle due to the cold uh, and, th- and because of that, obviously it wouldn't create a seal as well as it should have and therefore it wouldn't hold in the solid rocket booster. Uh, And because they just hadn't done the testing, they just really didn't have enough data to support a launch. So that's what they originally said, but then the teleconference took a break for a private chat. And when they came back, they'd actually kind of changed their story and said that they supported the launch. And yeah, it's kind of like hard to know like why. And if you watch the documentary, I recommend they talk a lot about this, like why they did it, you know, the pressure that they were feeling, the pressure from the management in in Thyacol who was like wanting to make NASA happy because they were they were a supplier and they wanted to not be the one person that held up the held up the launch. But yeah, why they changed their mind and and who did it in that space was obviously a, a challenge. And so they, yeah, so they came back and said, yeah, fine. Uh, and they agreed to it. And so did everyone else uh, following this teleconference. So they decided, right, looking at the risk profile, looking at the t- this discussion, they were going to go for it. So then overnight before, the SRBs got really cold. so some and Because as you can imagine, the shuttle and the solid rocket boosters at this point are out there on their stand you know on their ramps ready to take off it's not like the the shuttle is taken back inside uh, the shuttle and the solid rocket boosters are, are outside in the cold temperatures overnight prior to the launch and it was so cold even that night so minus 4 between minus 4 and minus 13 degrees and because of that even in the morning when they got there uh, and the shuttle was due to go at 9:30 the like everything was covered in ice it was, there was icicles dripping, dripping off them uh, because they had to keep like some water running over the solid rocket boosters overnight that water then froze um and again there was another discussion at this point whether they should Uh, delay because there was fears that the ice could break off and if the ice broke off and then it whacked into some other bits of the uh, equipment then it could break stuff which is very fair if they are very large uh, icicles but they said no the ice seems to be melting it all seems to be okay we really want to go we really want to go and so they decided to delay the launch slightly Uh, to allow the ice to melt a bit more, uh, and then, yes, go ahead with it. So they're originally due to go at around 9.37, but they eventually ended up taking off at around 11.38. So, yes, after that delay, uh, it was decided that it was ready to go, and they prepared for liftoff. And the shuttle took off from the ground successfully, Uh, so it went off, Yep, you know, no no issues. Took off and and flew high, high up in the sky. And again, if you watch the documentary that I recommend, there's, you know, there's so much footage of people sitting and watching it and being so excited that it's taken off and it's all going uh, going well and 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 shooting off off high into the sky. And even from the, around a minute in, you could start to see, even from the ground, this kind of like a different plume of, of smoke. Is it smoke? Plume of gases. Um, a, a plume. Um, an unusual plume started to be shown uh, from the right solid rocket boosters. And they noticed this on the ground, but nothing was really noted by the cockpit. The ground, you know, mission control didn't say anything at this point. There was no indication on any of their control panels or alerts or alarms that anything was going wrong. At around a minute, uh, there was the last communications between the Challenger and the ground control where they communicated to increase the throttle. Um, And then at 73 seconds into the flight, basically this is where it all went wrong, And at this point, there was a load of static on the radio. And that was the last thing that they heard. And at this point, the shuttle essentially just broke apart and exploded in the air above them. And it was hard to really know because obviously it was very high up in the sky as to what had happened and, and how, yeah, what was going on. Because obviously there was no communication, there was no alerts, there was no alarms, there was nothing to tell them that this was about to happen. And so they didn't really know what had happened, first of all, but they, at 89 seconds uh, post-launch, Mission Control saw the video footage uh, and it was very clear from the video footage that the uh, shuttle had broken apart. Uh, They also noted at that point uh, that there was obviously now a lack of any readings uh, in terms of the, the shuttle's progress and no communication from the crew. There was a quote... I want to say on Wikipedia, but maybe on one of the other websites, uh, which which was then about the communication. So because of the where the shuttle took off from, there was loads of public. The public was there to watch. And there was an an announcer who was announcing the progress of the shuttle and and how it was getting there and how it was going, how high it was. Uh, And that was also where like a lot of the families were watching it as well. And so, yeah, the quote said, Nesbitt stated, flight controllers here are looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. Soon afterwards, he said, we have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. The flight director confirms that. We are looking at checking with the recovery forces to see what can be done at this point. So, yeah, I think that that was an announcement that they made. There was also, you can see it on the documentary, um, it's, it, yeah, it's really horrible. It's like they'd come over the radio pretty much straight away saying, yeah, the the vehicle's exploded. Um, and everyone who was just on the ground watching it, people at schools watching it were just astounded because basically millions of people had just watched this aircraft explode um, and and all the people... Die in front of their eyes, so it was a really kind of horrific experience for them. So yeah, that was that was very tragic, and obviously the families were all rushed off uh, back to together to. To discuss and to to have comfort, and it was really hard because at the mo- at that point, you know, the families didn't necessarily know that their that the crew had not survived. Because you know, as soon as you see something like that, I think it's natural for you to think, right? Well, they're just gonna fall. You know, they they're gonna be okay. They'll they'll recover them. They'll figure something out. And so, what followed basically was just a lot of confusion. I think some people saw it and knew that that would have. You know, not been survivable, uh, but not not everyone knew that until they could go and and look at the the debris and see what came next. So yeah, so when they rewatched the footage, uh, it was seen even from the beginning that there was smoke coming from that solid ro- the right solid ro- rocket booster, and it became clear quite early on that due to the cold and the water, the O ring just hadn't sealed correctly even from very early liftoff. And because the O-ring was then exposed to lots of heat and gas, it continued to erode until it just failed completely. And what this meant was that the liquid hydrogen in the solid rocket booster passed forward to do the liquid oxygen. And that resulted in this huge pressure change of the solid rocket booster attached to the shuttle. And so because it was attached to it when, and the Challenger was traveling so fast, so it was already dealing with the huge amounts of different forces. When that uh, change in the solid rocket booster happened, basically it caused the entire challenger to and shuttle to to break apart so it just broke into into pieces uh, as a result of it and then eventually uh, exploded uh, in in the different areas so it, we, we could see that it broke into parts like the wings the crew compartment itself broke off uh, in as a whole uh, the engine uh, broke as well uh, and there were recorded words of uh-oh Uh, recorded by the crew in the cockpit at 72 seconds. Uh, And that was the last words that were heard. And so once the shuttle broke up, obviously all the pieces uh, then returned, fell back to Earth. And the sad bit about this is actually they couldn't really determine how they died uh, in terms of the crew because actually when the ship blew apart whilst the shuttle was obviously destroyed and damaged, it's unlikely that they would have died at that point when when it was blasted apart because it was still intact and the forces that they were exposed to probably wouldn't have killed them, or at least not all of them. And there was some evidence of this because some of the crew had activated their personal egress air packs. And these were like emergency packs that were actually designed so that when they were on the ground, if something went wrong prior to the launch whilst they were just sitting there, uh, then it would give them extra air because of how the shuttle works. They wouldn't be able to have air. Um, And so these personal egress packs would give them six minutes of air uh, whilst they were on the ground so that it could allow them to escape. And so obviously that's seen as kind of a, uh, they've been trained on that. They've been trained if there's an emergency, whack this, even though the, egress air packs didn't wouldn't help at all in in the situation they were in uh, that had been done which meant that meant that something had happened um and same again there was evidence of uh where the pilot was where uh, specific switches had been like opened and changed and that would have clearly had to have happened after the explosion in order to try and like re- reinstall restore power, uh, uh, etc. So, yeah, it was clear that not all of them uh, died at that that moment of of explosion in the air. But it's likely that they died on impact with the ocean, uh, which happened around two minutes and forty-five seconds after the breakup itself. Uh, But it's more likely that they just lost consciousness, um, either at the point of impact or very shortly afterwards, uh, due to the pressure change, loss of air pressure, etc. So, thankfully, I think, (laughs) because it's so like this is such a horrible situation, but I think what when these types of things happen, you know, all you can hope is that they died quickly and painlessly, right? That it would just, it just was one moment they were there and the next moment they weren't. And I think knowing that they didn't die immediately on on, uh, the explosion, but died on impact, I think it's very hard to then think that they had those minutes uh, kind of waiting. But I think knowing what we know, it's very likely, like I say, that they were they were lost consciousness uh, in between and basically from from the moment it happened a few seconds afterwards they were probably unconscious uh, and then died a few minutes later. And yeah and and really there was no you know there was no mechanism built in for escape in terms of the shuttle at that point because they just determined that it wasn't needed. They thought that the shuttle itself had very high reliability. they just didn't think that they would need to 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 play for this situation. Uh, and in future, actually we'll covered this on what we learned, but uh, they did eventually add more kind of escape mechanisms, escape equipment, uh, but more for like gliding. So like when it came into land, they added things for that, uh, but they never did add anything into support escape in the same uh, situation that we talked about in terms of what have happened. So as soon as the Challenger um, exploded and they knew that it had been lost, uh, the recovery ships that would normally go and pick up the solid rocket booster debris were sent out to find the... The remains of the ship uh, and what happened Um, and like I said there was still some hope at this point by the crew and their families that the crew would still be alive Um, and you know you can see on the documentary the families were like no you know they they, their loved ones were so skilled if there was anything that they could have done to survive then they would have done Uh, but it soon became clear that it was it was not the case and they um, that they were sadly deceased. And so, yeah, so then they went out and started recovering as much as they could so that they could start to learn what happened. Uh, and the recovery took quite quite a long time. It took a few months um, and they found, uh, yeah, took took things until about mid-April. Uh, they did find the crew's bodies, uh, but they weren't intact, but they were all collected and returned so that they could have proper funerals and, and everything like that, which was good. And then, following the accident, obviously anything like this of the scale and magnitude and everything like that, uh, there was huge amounts of media coverage that followed it. and a lot of interest in terms of what went wrong and and, and what happened. And so immediately after in February, the Rogers Commission was formed, and the commission was uh, designed to investigate all the different areas of the incident. Uh, they covered they conducted hundreds of interviews um, and did a load of investigation sessions. But I think it's fair to say that even from very early on, the everyone involved knew it was the O-rings that were likely the ones that had failed. They could see from the plumes uh, and where the smoke had been on the footage that it was clearly coming from that area. They knew that they had no evidence that it would succeed. They knew that people were worried about it. So they came quite quickly and the commission as well came quite quickly to find that the accident was the cause of the uh, was caused by failure of the O-rings. Uh, and the panel also concluded that both NASA and Thiokol had look, overlooked evidence or seen evidence and made decisions to the contrary that the O-rings may not work successfully. Also around that, they found a lot of things around safety culture and management. And so because uh, what well, basically between safety culture and management wasn't sufficient... And like I say, I've, we've mentioned it a few times, like there was so much pressure on them to do so many flights. There was pressure on them to turn around quickly. There was commercial pressures on them. There was just so much kind of going against the, all the people involved to, to make them rush and to maybe not put safety first that it meant that this was, you know, an area that was really heavily criticized as part of the commission and really recommended to, to, be, to be fixed and a better safety culture embedded and it's recommended that they recommended in the commission that a new way of doing the O-rings was uh, designed. So they basically said, "Look, you need to go away and redesign these from scratch uh, and build them in the way that you are much more comfortable and happy with." Uh, it also recommended the setup of a specific safety team. Uh, they recommended restructuring bits in NASA to allow the pressure to be kept in kind of one one area rather than impacting like the program managers. Uh, And they also recommended including the astronauts more to address any astronaut concerns. Uh, And they did a big risk management review as well. So, yeah, very, very tragic. Um, They did eventually build the Endeavour, which would replace Challenger. uh, And that was made in 1990. Um and in general, the whole program was grounded for two years and eight months until September 1988, whilst it did all of the changes uh, that were discussed around the O-rings, rebuilding those and around changing the safety culture before it was deemed that it was acceptable for them to continue, uh, and they were ready to launch discovery. The discovery launch really was the first way, and to show successfully uh, that they, the, the redesigns they've done have been successful. In terms of the, the kind of aftermath, then they, um, all the crew received Medals of Honor uh, by George W. Bush in 2004. Um, and there was there's, there's a huge number of memorials um, and relics from the flight on show uh, in a variety of museums and basically anywhere that there's anything to do with space, um, there's there's usually something around the Challenger associated with it. But yeah, luckily we did learn some stuff. So following that commission, uh, they did fully redesign the solid rocket boosters. uh, And they were now known as the Redesigned Solid Rocket Motors. So they got a fancy new name as well. Uh, And that included things like they added heaters to make sure the joints were always kept at the right temperature. And they kind of changed how the whole joint was designed so that actually it would seal more if the joint rotated or changed rather than breaking. And that was very successful um, and it was fully tested (laughs) in a huge range of scenarios uh, to make sure that it would not fail when taking off. They also, as a part of this, um, did a lot of larger updates to the shuttle. They reviewed all, all the different areas and included the escape mechanisms that I mentioned earlier. And then what else we learned was yeah, around that safety culture. So they created the Office of Safety, Reliability and Quality Assurance. And the aim of that was to try and build a safety culture. Um, the irony is this, and if you listen to this and then go back and read the Columbia one, because I'm pretty sure I talked about it there, was that actually in the Columbia one, they they criticized a lot around the safety culture. So clearly safety culture is something that's very hard to do and hard to maintain uh, within an organization of that size and with the pressures going on. Uh, but, you know, the hope is that they they, they can do that. Um, and yeah. It's a a hard one, but it's come up in here and in Columbia as well. Uh, And then finally, they did uh, eventually replace the Teachers in Space program. Uh, They called it the Educators in Space. Um, And the idea with the the new program was actually uh, rather than having teachers who would come and train for a year and then do it and then go back to being teachers, uh, the teachers would be recruited to then become full-time astronauts. Um, and this was really successful. Uh, it went really well. Um, and actually, the backup for Krista McAuliffe, which was a woman called Barbara Morgan, uh, eventually did get into space with, with the educators in space route uh, in the, in a few years later. So, yeah, I think, I think the thing with the Challenger is that it it's hard because it was like, They knew, you know, they kind of knew what was going to happen and they knew that they had this area of fault but carried on anyway. But I also just think how, how the accident happened with so many people watching, so many kids watching, you know, it really was like quite a quite a moment in history right and if you were if you were alive if you're at school or or else we're watching it I'm sure that you I'm sure some of you listening right now probably probably remember it and have um you know and it's it's impacted you it's impacted people right moving forward so yeah it's one that I'm glad we've covered uh, but yeah it's just very very sad so in terms of references the most important reference and the one I keep keep talking about which is the documentary um it's called Challenger the Final Flight it's a four part series it's available on Netflix it's really good um I actually watched it before I even started the podcast i think it came out in 2020 um and i and i loved it then and i rewatched it in order to do this this podcast and i really liked it again when i when i rewatched it They've got a lot of, like, because of the time and because of the media interest, they have loads of footage from the time itself, obviously the footage where you can see the ship exploding, Um, but they've also got a lot of, like, interviews with the crew and everyone, so it's just really, really important. And then they've also interviewed a lot of, like, the Thiocol employees and how they managed and the kind of stress and um, anxiety that was put on them. And, yeah, it's just very good so highly recommend that uh and then i just had a few other kind of random random articles which i'll i'll link in the below in the in the show notes but yeah get get watching that documentary if you're interested in this one thank you very much for listening uh like i say if you could follow me on instagram i'm at when it goes wrong pod drop me an email uh, at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com always love your feedback always love any requests for episodes um and please do rate subscribe all that fun stuff